This is Politics, where we bring the scripture to life and leadership today. Happy Friday, and welcome to our third week in our journey through Exodus. This week, the scripture passages uh, range from chapter 3, verse 10, uh, up to chapter 4, verse 17, and they cover God giving Moses this mission, this commission uh, to go to Egypt and set his people free. And so we're going to talk just a little bit in this uh, Friday wrap-up about who is responsible for what part of this mission. Uh, plus, I've got one uh, extra bonus question at the end that popped up uh, to me in my reading of this. Um, so as we begin, uh, looking at that first section, uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, um, this is where God, from the burning bush, the, the voice from the burning bush that we talked about last week, gives Moses this mission. And I found it curious as you go through that passage, trying to figure out who is saying what in the dialogue. And, and that's kind of what I noted there in my markings. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, some different things that you can do and underlining or highlighting nouns or action words or different things. And for that particular section, uh, I chose to try to highlight and color code, so to speak, the different um, people who were saying different things. Because it starts off fairly straightforward. God is speaking, and then Moses responds. Uh, but then there toward the end, God is talking about putting words into Moses' mouth for Moses to tell the people. And it gets a little tricky about who's the one who's actually speaking um, and whose words they belong to there. And uh, so at the beginning there, God specifically says he's going to send Moses to Egypt that Moses may bring God's people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt and then um, take them into the promised land after that. But then as Moses says, well, what am I going to say to these people? Uh, God says, this is what you're going to say to them. And uh, in, in that dialogue, and that's the last part there, where God is giving Moses the words to say, God doesn't tell Moses to tell the people that Moses himself is going to take the people um, and do all this for them. He tells Moses to tell the people that it is God doing the work. So essentially what you have here is a kind of delineation, or that's probably not the, the, the right word, probably um, two different versions of who is responsible for this work. And this is really getting nitpicky at it, but this is what we do in manuscript study is, is we, we look down at those close details uh, to try to find out what's going on and see what we can draw up out of the text there. And just the fact that uh, we have God who is um, a, an embodiment of goodness, of holiness, of righteousness, and therefore we would I would want to assume honesty out of that. You have him telling Moses one thing about who's responsible for this work and telling Moses, who's kind of this lead actor, this lead agent uh, involved in this work, 
He's telling Moses, you're the one in charge. You're the one responsible for making this happen. But then when you go and tell the people, when they start questioning, then you tell them that God is in charge. Um, that just, it seems a little bit unique. Um, and, and in some ways, it makes the dialogue then a little bit extra complicated. And we're going to see that come up more in these passages. Um, so who's bringing them out of Egypt, God or Moses? Well, God tells Moses he is doing it. Um, God tells Moses to tell the people that God is the one taking the responsibility for that. Um, the rest of these, these passages have to do with Moses trying to get out of this job that God has told him he's responsible for, um, but God is going to take the credit for. Moses is going to try anything and everything that he can come up with uh, to get out of this job. And so in that second passage, um, he then, uh, God tells him that you're going to go to the Egyptians and tell them to, to let my people go. We know that phrase. And it's not going to work. And so, it's in fact, it's not going to work until God steps in and intervenes and does some uh, miraculous wonders um, to, to really kind of scare them into letting the Hebrew people go. And then at the very uh, end of those plagues, not only will they go, but they will plunder the Egyptians. Um, and that was where I was looking at some common words uh, that we we use in everyday language and that the words themselves are, are not surprising, but in the context, in the context of breaking free out of a uh, yoke of slavery. And not only that, but taking a lot of the wealth with them as they go out into the uh, wilderness to worship God. We see God um, telling Moses to say please to Pharaoh in this, not demanding, even though God's going to come in with a hammer with these plagues uh, that are later on here in the story, but that Moses is to say please to Pharaoh. And then when they're taking the wealth, uh, it says that the women, not the men aren't supposed to break in and take whatever goods that they can have and, and you know, take it and run. It says the women are supposed to ask uh, the people they're serving and ask their neighbors to give them gold and silver and treasures and things like that, to, to knock on their door and ask, hey, could we take some of this wealth with us? It seems just kind of ridiculous to me, this idea of we're breaking free and we're, we're getting uh, some sense of retribution or justice or what, I don't know what it is, um, but we're, we're saying please and thank you while we're doing it. That's just really bizarre. And, and I would say a little bit contrary to human nature. And it tells me that I don't fully understand the cultural um, clash between the Egyptians and the Hebrews and their relationship and, and what it means when it talks about uh, slavery in this context. It brings just lots of questions to mind and lots of flags that are waving that are saying, hey, there's some questions here and, and room to dig a little deeper and find out more because some of the things that I assumed were true don't line up um, with what I'm actually reading when I see those very common words, please, asking, thank you, you know, those kind of uh, courteous and, and words of manners 
in the context of conflict and uh, trying to get uh, justice and, and things made right and be set free uh, from that bondage. So the, the third day then um, is where Moses responds and really starts making these excuses. And, and he makes this uh, kind of logical argument, what if they don't believe me? Or what if they don't even listen to me long enough to believe me, um, to what you've given me to say? Because who is Moses? in their life. He's nobody. He's not even a part of their life anymore. He's moved to another country, started a new family. Um, and by this very short reading over many decades that have passed here, uh, it's hard to tell that he has any relationship uh, with the Hebrew people. What if they tell Moses, God has not appeared to you? You're crazy. We don't believe you. Um, and then this is where God gives Moses these three signs. Um, and if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments the movie or any of them uh, animated or um, cinematic portrayals of Moses, uh, these are three signs that, that get shown quite a bit. The staff that's thrown down that turns into a serpent, and then Moses picks it back up and it turns into a staff. Um, the putting his hand inside his coat and it coming out looking pale and diseased um, and putting it back in and it coming back in and being normal. And then finally the last one which kind of kicks off the ten plagues uh, which is taking water from the Nile and pouring it on the ground and it becomes his blood. And these are three powerful signs and uh, as we'll see some of those signs are actually reproduced by the magicians in Pharaoh's court, those, uh, that first one in particular. And so um, there's a, a sense of who's this sign really for? And, and they obviously compound on each other and sort of get worse and worse or more miraculous and more miraculous which with each one that passes. But um, who, who are these signs for and how is it helping them to believe? And... Um, while God is giving these to Moses to show to Pharaoh, and actually Moses' question is not so much to uh, about the Egyptian people, it's about his, his own people, the Hebrew people. How will he make them believe? Um, so it's, it's the question about who, who is the person that these signs are supposed to help make believe. And uh, while there's certainly a need for the Egyptians to believe in God, and definitely a need for the Hebrew people to believe in God. There is also a need at this point for Moses to believe. And that's where I see with that throwing the staff down on the ground uh, that didn't impress um, Pharaoh as much or the Egyptians when it got pulled off uh, that we'll read in, in a few chapters here. But it scared Moses enough when it was just him and God in the burning bush um, that he tried to flee. And God had to call him and say, pick it back up again, and it turned into a staff. And so I really think that a good part of these signs, especially the, the serpent or the staff turned into a serpent and then back into a staff again, um, was really for Moses, for his sake, because he seemed to be the one that was most impressed with that and the only one there when it first happened. Uh, the thing with his hand, that would get other people's attention um, because of the uh, stigma that disease had. 
um, for the Egyptians, probably for the Hebrew people too, because uh, back then there were not lots of cures for uh, diseases. And we've seen in our own context uh, here today with COVID going around, the kind of panic and, and things that that causes uh, when someone walks into a place and is coughing their head off and having a, a very obviously sick people get nervous. Um, so that that could have been one to, to sort of get everybody's attention there. And then the thing about the Nile turning, uh, the, the water turning into blood when it was poured on the ground, that wasn't done right there on the mountain. That was, uh, if they don't believe those first two signs do this, that will wake them up and get them at their attention. And that that's a corruption of a source of life for them. The Nile in that river valley there was a, a little oasis in a place that was very desert-like, very much wilderness. And as we have seen and uh, talked about in last week, you need water to survive. And for a civilization to grow, for cities to grow up around, for you to have crops and livestock and all that, you need a good supply of fresh water. And if something happens to that water to corrupt it, um, I think with it turning into blood, that there's a spiritual aspect of that because blood, especially when it's outside the body, uh, is a symbol of um, being hurt and, uh, and oftentimes a, a symbol of death, that something has died and is, is there in the water and can we drink the water anymore? Um, it would be the same if it was oil or some kind of toxic contaminant to us today, uh, a similar kind of response. We've got to stop everything. We've got to figure out what's going on because if people can't get water, civilization can't survive here and we're in a whole heap of trouble. So that sign, which was not done there on the mountain, I think was really a wake up call for everybody there of, no, you really do need to pay attention to this guy who's got words from, from God coming to them. So that's where it's beginning with Moses taking that step, going to the people, bearing that responsibility, speaking the words himself, and God backing him up um, and taking the responsibility of validating him as his prophet, as his messenger, um, showing that proof through those three signs and showing that at, at varying degrees. Uh, but I think in this passage right here, where it's God just talking to Moses before they even get to Egypt in the first place, it's important to remember that Moses himself needs to believe that this is God. He doesn't have a, a long-standing relationship with God. Um, he may have left a lot of his people and their customs. And as we talked about in previous week, I'm not even sure how much the Hebrew people kept up with their worship of God uh, or understanding how, how much of that was being passed down. Probably uh, word of mouth um, from parents to children through those generations. And so, so God, before he can convince Egypt, before he can convince the Hebrew people, He's got to convince Moses. And I think a lot of these signs uh, are first directed to helping Moses believe. And that takes us to this, this last part where Moses is really trying to get out of it. And he says, I'm not good at speaking. 
I've never been eloquent. I've, I've never been a good speaker. My mouth mutters and stutters and I've got problems. And God at this point is getting irritated with Moses and says, who do you think created your mouth? Who's the one that you think uh, helps you get anything out of it? Um, God being the source of life, being the creator of everything knows very well what Moses can and can't say. And he's the one that's going to supply the ability. But Moses, even when he's confronted with that, and that, that's just a very logical, in-your-face, you can't get around this kind of argument. If God says he's going to make you do it, he's going to help you do it, he's going to be your strength. The creator of the universe has got your back. There's nothing that can stand against you. But still, still, Moses says, please find somebody else. At that point, there's no more excuse anymore. It's an unwillingness. It's, it's moving from... He's giving these reasons, these excuses about a lack of ability, of uh, concern that he's not the right person because he doesn't have the ability. God is explaining to him. and gets very clear there at the end. God is the one who gives that ability. And whether he has it or not is in God's hands. It's, it's up to God in that. Um, it's not a question of ability. It is a question of willingness. And Moses just comes out and says, please find somebody else. I'm not willing. And that's where God gets angry with him. Um, and he says, fine, here comes your brother. So I'm going to give you the words and you give it to Aaron and Aaron's going to give it to people. We're going to play this kind of game of telephone, <laughs> teleprofit. And even makes this comparison that for, you are going to be like God and Aaron's going to be your prophet to deliver that message to the people. And this through the unwillingness of Moses to do what God is asking him to do, we have unnecessary complication. This was not God's first plan in this. God's first plan was just to have Moses go to the people. But now there's a, a, another mediator, Aaron, who's, his older brother, who's stepping up and taking on this role. Um, and so I, I think that's where, when I look in my life, um, and perhaps when you look in your life, in all areas, uh, we get this sort of buildup of unnecessary complication. And it's not always God. In fact, it may be far less God than it is our own human nature. And, and not just we're humans, we like things to be complicated. I don't know that that's the case. But our unwillingness to trust and obey God leads to further complications and buildup of these systems and structures, which may not be bad in and of themselves. I mean, they were able to incorporate Aaron into this ministry and make a place for him. And we have a whole line of priesthood uh, for the Jewish people that occurs after this. But it's the question is, is it, is it necessary? And was it necessary here? Because it seems from God's standpoint and from what God is saying, that it's not. That God is doing this uh, because of our unwillingness um, to do what we've asked him to do. There are other places in the scriptures, there are other places where Jesus really addresses that, uh, not from the standpoint of uh, bringing God's word to people, but just, just our, our life and how we live with each other and with God where we make things more complicated than God ever intended them to be. And that, that often comes 
because of our unwillingness, not our inability, but our unwillingness uh, to trust and obey God. So that's this, this week, this mission that God gives us that's tied into the salvation of his people. He wants us to be agents. Uh, he wants us to be part of that. And he has specific roles for each one of us, but often we are unwilling. It's not a question of being unable. God is the one who makes us able. And if he asks us to do something, he has a means of giving us the ability to do it. We are often unwilling to do it though. So I had one other question that popped up in the midst of this, and I tried to do a little bit of research and didn't get very far uh, this week, but I know there's some, some good answers out there. Um, this last passage, when God points and says to Moses, well, here comes your brother Aaron. He can be your mouthpiece for you. Moses is on this mountain that's somewhere on the border between Egypt and, uh, and Midian, the country that he had fled to. And the scripture doesn't tell us that there is any really going back and forth, um, that Moses hasn't returned to Egypt. But uh, as I pointed out uh, last week, he, he was going close to that border. And, and I was just curious, maybe he wanted to look over the, the water's edge there and see into Egypt and, and see if he could see any of his people or just kind of reminisce on his past there. But uh, they're on this mountain as Moses is out uh, minding his father-in-law's flock, goes up and sees this burning bush, um, has this conversation with God. All of a sudden, his older brother walks up. Now, this is not a, a brother-in-law from Midian. This is a older brother because it points out Aaron is a Levite. He's from the Hebrew people. He came from Egypt where the people are in slavery. How does that happen? How does Aaron show up there? Uh, and so there's multiple questions there. How did he escape if he's supposed to be in slavery there? How did he get out of Egypt? Um, and, and that sort of kind of makes me wonder when they talk about being in slavery and bondage in Egypt, what does that actually look like? Because the sort of traditional colonial American view of slavery is not one where you can just get up and leave and go to another country and go visit your brother. So there may be some different contexts to what it means for them to be slaves there in Egypt um, that are not part of my traditional understanding of that. Secondly, how did Aaron know to go to see his brother? Was this the first time that he's gone to see his brother, or has this been a more common practice? Was it in fact something where Moses was heading out this way with the flocks because he went out to somewhat regularly meet with uh, some of the Hebrew people and potentially his family at this point? The scripture doesn't tell us. And so where that, that's where a point where when the scripture is silent, sometimes we infer and put in a lot of things where if it doesn't say it, that means it definitely didn't happen. But it doesn't say. It doesn't say one way or another. Um, it's just this powerful opportunity where Moses is trying to make excuses and God says, look, here's your brother Aaron. So God's apparently at work still with the Hebrew people. 
we're not hearing and seeing that part of the story. But something is going on here. Um, so that Aaron shows up. As I said, I don't have a lot of answers to that. But that's an example of, I've read this story over and over and over again. And uh, I think in the back of my mind, I assumed that Aaron was somehow connected with the in-laws that were part of the family that Moses had currently been living with. But it, it specifically points out that Aaron was his brother uh, of the Hebrew people, his biological brother from the time that he was in Egypt. And so that means I need to go back and try to get a better idea of uh, what it meant for them to be slaves in Egypt, because looking at the text there shows me that I don't know enough to really understand what that looked like. Thank you for joining today uh, for Jesus Politics and our journey through Exodus. And I look forward to hearing from you in the comments and uh, we'll see you again next week. This is Tony Franklin. Thank you for joining us for Jesus Politics and our journey through Exodus. See you all next Friday.